0: Welcome to Season 4, Episode 8 of the Not Your Mama's Autism Podcast. I'm Lala Dada Ali. In this episode, we speak with a man who, like many of our guests, has many layers. JP, also known as J-Rock Horsley, is a Black autistic musician who currently lives in the UK. He's also a contributor to the book, Educational Psychology Perspectives on Supporting Young Autistic People, Insight from Experience, Practice and Research, which is scheduled to be published this month, April, 2022. We recently had an amazing discussion that really drives home the point that diversity shouldn't ever be applied in a vacuum or be siloed. We are often more than one category. I hope the richness of his story and the insights he's gained on his journey helps you understand a bit more about autism through this man's eyes. So with that in mind, let's get started. Welcome, welcome, welcome. John (laughs) Paul, JP, J-Rock, your many many names. (laughs) Welcome to the Not Your Mama's Autism Podcast. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you
1: for having me. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you. So we talked a little bit on background. We are what I call African cousins. Um, I'm Nathan (laughs) Yergen. Yes. And so you have, and that's the beauty of what we cover in this podcast, because I think sometimes when we look at diversity and inclusion, we look at things through just one lens, but you're a little bit about, your Ghanaian, you're yeah. British. Yes. yes, a little bit American. A little bit American.
1: I grew up in DC, so yeah, I'm pretty world worldly.
0: I love it. In my I outlook,
1: yes.
0: I love it. So... <laughs> let's just start. I mean, how would you describe yourself? Like in that famous like elevator pitch, if you're in an (laughs) elevator with someone who knew nothing about you, how would you describe yourself?
1: Um, I'm a creative, trustworthy, uh, loyal person by nature. Um, Again, I think the the whole uh, trustworthy thing is is down to my own autism as well. I find it very difficult to elaborate on you know BS. Basically, I don't <coughs> suffer fools, um, and I'm very black and white. So you know that's how I would describe myself. But probably probably creative first, because you know I, I'm a problem solver. <laughs>
0: hmm. let's dig a little bit deeper how uh-huh. do you feel like you use creativity to solve problems
1: well first and foremost uh you know even with my career in the music industry it's like taking a blank slate and making a beautiful piece of art on it but obviously with us uh, in the music industry it's all digital so um we're able to create whatever we want out of nothing, like no sound whatsoever. And then you start with the one drum, the second drum, the hi-hats, the this and the that. And once you have the instrumental, then you start putting the words together and the words end up becoming a story that people can relate to, whether they're on the spectrum or not. I find that to be like my greatest uh, magic trick.
0: (laughs) I always like to ask artists this. I'm genuinely, I genuinely am curious. How do you know when a piece of art is complete, when it's finished? For me,
1: um, I have a condition called synesthesia as well, which means I think visually. So when I'm thinking of a song, for instance, it's like a whole movie is playing out in my head. And I'm like, oh, OK, I can put this piece to, you know, that part of the music and people are, are going to gravitate towards it. And, you know, as I'm writing, if I'm putting a smile on my own face, I know that I'm, <laughs> I'm doing the right thing. I mean, I come from the era where, you know, I was listening to Big Daddy Kane back in the days. Then my, you know, love for hip hop was solidified. I started listening to Public Enemy, N.W.A., and, you know, iced tea and the rest. So as I was listening to them when I was coming up as a child, maybe eight years old or whatever, I was like, this is what I want to do. But the style of music was so street and so, you know, cutting edge that I had to put my own twist on it because I wasn't necessarily that way by nature. I became that after a while, you know, when you're growing up in the inner city, you have to be kind of tough. You have to be kind of hard. But um, originally I was not that way at all. You know, I have uh, Ghanaian parents, as we were talking about. My dad was actually a diplomat for, for, for uh, President Le Man. So I grew up in Washington, DC and um, yeah, all of the influences that came along with that, that's what it is, you know?
0: So, when did you move across the pond to to the UK? Yeah, and how did that influence what you do now?
1: Um, I moved to the UK in 1984 and I was about six years old at the time. Um, I think that's a part of the reason why I didn't have an autism diagnosis as a child because of all of the moving and family drama. So, you know, as much as the teachers were were telling my parents that, you know, John Paul isn't really contributing in class. He's not really talking. He's not really, you know, like the rest of the kids. Like my parents were like, hey, he's fine. He talks at home. He's good kind of thing. And then all of this, um, you know, upheaval happened with um, President Rollins coming in with a with a coup and stuff. So we couldn't actually go back to Ghana we were displaced from America. And uh, my dad's father was actually a British colonialist. So um, he had come back to England, but he passed away before my dad had a chance to to actually touch base with him. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I came to England in 1984 as a, as a young man. And again, the whole You know, I I lived a pretty privileged life as a as a child, you know, and uh, when we came to England, that's when everything kind of changed and uh, reality, you know, came home. We didn't have the big house anymore. We didn't have the chauffeur driven cars anymore. We didn't have anything. So I had to learn life from the beginning, you know, and um, it was a little bit difficult. Like, uh, as a six-year-old, hearing other six-year-olds swearing, you don't really get that in America. But, like, in the UK, it's commonplace. Everyone was swearing this, that, and the other, cussing each other. So, again, coming from a place of not really talking much and having to understand and navigate my way around, you know, children that were a little bit quicker than myself, (laughs) you know, it caused me to speak out. It caused me to you know beat them at their own game kind of thing and um you know it it wasn't always proud moments there were times where you know i was you know around six years old still and you know writing swear words and you know totally getting a beating and stuff like that so you know it was it was a it was a funny time for my whole family but I, i guess for myself especially because you know i knew that there was something different about me, but I just didn't know what it was. Or, you know, I didn't know how to transition from being a quiet and reserved kid into speaking out. So um, I learned the hard way and um, it made me the person who I am today, basically, yeah.
0: (laughs) At what point did you realize that you wanted music to be a major part of your life?
1: OK, so again, um maybe I was 10 years old and um, my dad had bought me a radio for my birthday. So I was constantly listening to like underground stations in the UK. And, you know, we used to have these TDK tapes back in the days. So I would press play and record and record my favorite songs from there. Um, again, I got really creative. I, I was able to cut my tapes and stick them back together with you know tape and stuff like that and um i was able to actually record songs almost like you know without having a karaoke player or without having anything i was just being creative as a child and and trying to hone my skills as a as an artist but at 10 years old you're not thinking about being an artist artist you're just thinking about having fun with words so again you know being on the autistic spectrum having fun with words, it doesn't really fit in the same sentence. But um, again, my dad was very strict with, with you know, the learning in the house. He used to make me, like, write out pages from the dictionary and stuff like that. So by the time I was 10 years old, my knowledge of the English language was vast. And, uh, you know, I was writing simple rhymes, you know, creating simple beats and playing it to my friends who were like, wow, you're the rapper now. And I'm like, really? (laughs) But, you know, when you get so many people saying you're good at this, you kind of think, okay, I'm going to try my hand. And uh, for many years, you know, I was just rapping when Crisscross Cross came out. I was telling all of the kids at school, I'm Crisscross," Cross and stuff like that, (laughs) wrapping their raps around the the playground until they found out that, you know, there is a group called Crisscross, Cross and I'm not in it. And so forth and so forth. <laughs> so, you know, my mind was wandering quicker than quicker than anything else. But you know, I knew that that was what I wanted to be at that point. And um I was I was adamant that I was gonna make it happen.
0: That crisscross story is amazing. Thank you for sure. <laughs> Thank, I appreciate that. So you mentioned several times now that you knew you were different, but when Mm. did you get your formal autism diagnosis?
1: Oh, I was 38 years old when I got my formal diagnosis. So very late diagnosis. And um, I suppose it came about because my eldest son, who who is 14 years old, he was uh, going through the diagnosis process. But while they were going through it and they were talking about the uh, traits of autism and the symptoms that you might see in a in an autistic person, I was like, oh, I have that. I have that. I have this. Like when they were saying hypermobile limbs, I was like, my limbs are hypermobile. When they were talking about extra sharp hearing, I was like, dude, I can hear people from three miles away. When they were talking about extra sharp um, eyesight and stuff like that. My partner will let you know I can see people from miles off and be like, oh, that's so-and-so. And, and, you know, have a story for that person as well. So, you know, when they were going through the diagnosis process with my son, I was like, oh, you're going to be fine then because I have all of these these traits too. And then, you know, they let us know that, yes, he is on the spectrum, but they couldn't tell us where. You see, my son was diagnosed uh, before he was two years old. And immediately after the um, MMR vaccination, so for me, it was like, whoa, like, did I mess up? Have I, you know, allowed something to go into my son's body that has created a regression or what? And of course, every everybody said, no, no, there's no link between MMR and autism, this, that and the other. And, and a funny story is this. I recently started working with the uh, health care service over here in the in the UK, the NHS, and um, I had to get my vaccinations. So when they were taking my bloods, they realized that I had never had the uh, MMR vaccination in my life. So, you know, I went all those years without having the MMR, but I still have autism, which was mind blowing to me because of the regression I saw my son go through, you know? So again, I was thinking, is the MMR a accelerant for some people? Does it cause your autism to be compounded and and, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, concentrated? And um, maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, there's been no further research on that side of things. So um, I've allowed myself to not think about it so much and um, continue with life as, as best as I can, especially with my son in, in mind.
0: So is your son's, um, how can I can say, version of autism or type of autism, it's, it's different, is it different from yours? Absolutely. Instantly?
1: Okay. Absolutely. I mean, for me, um, even when I was a young child, I was able to talk. Um, I just found it very difficult to speak in certain situations. Um, Like if there was a new person in my environment, I would find it really difficult to, you know, get the words out. Um, In school, when I was in kindergarten or whatever, I didn't speak at all. I just sat there and waited to be picked up from from kindergarten and stuff like that. Uh, For my son, my eldest anyway, he's 14 and nonverbal. So even in the house, around people that he's used to, he still cannot get the words out. Occasionally, you will hear him say one word here and one word there, but it may be months between. And um, yeah, my, my version of autism is called uh, Asperger's syndrome. So it's something that people like Einstein have had or even uh, your Elon Musk's type of thing. But my eldest son has classic, autism you know so he's nonverbal. he speaks with uh sign language or he can type so um he's always showing me his ipad as to what he's you know looking for or what he wants
0: my daughter is more classic autism as well my son mm-hmm. uh EDDNOS, pervasive nos yes, pervasive yeah. not otherwise specified for our listeners yeah. who don't know yeah. um Now, um, at least in America, there's everything's just classified under autism spectrum disorder all together are different levels. I'm not sure how it is in the UK, but.
1: I mean, we still like to be specific about uh, where people are on the spectrum. So now that I work in the NHS, I work with adults who are on the spectrum, but they have other maybe mental health issues. And I realized that a lot of the patients that we look after over there are high functioning, like extremely high functioning. They're able to speak for themselves. They're able to, you know, do their own thing for the most part. But um, they may have issues with uh, OCD. They may have issues with, um, you know, Schizophrenia, they may have issues with personality disorders. They may have issues with a number of different uh, mental health conditions. So again, you know, um, I used to work with children who were on the spectrum in schools. I used to one to one teach uh, the autistic kids who were in um, mainstream schools and stuff like that. Um, I went from there to working with teenagers in uh, youth zones in the UK. Uh, working with teenagers who were on the spectrum, and now I'm working with adults. So I have a good overview of the different things that potentially could happen to somebody who was on the spectrum for sure.
0: So based on your personal experience and then what you've seen mm-hmm. one-on-one through various stages in the life, um, you know, in, in someone's lifespan, yeah. what do you think neurotypicals misunderstand? about you
1: (laughs) (laughs) now this is a good one I mean um obviously you know my life has been pretty broad you know I've I've traveled the world doing music which is which is different in the first place like autism and music a lot of people will expect me to be you know covering my ears if I'm in a loud environment but I love loud music and the repetition of it kind of thing um Repeat the question again. I'm so sorry.
0: Sure. What do you think people misunderstand about you and others who are also on the spectrum, just based on your life experience and interacting with them, especially what you mentioned about the one-on-one?
1: Yeah, um, yeah.
0: One aid. Yeah.
1: I, think, I think what people get misconstrued about autism and myself in particular is that they think I don't understand everything. And um, I may take a little bit longer to process exactly what needs to be done, but I have no problem with understanding at all. I mean, comprehension is is one of my favorite things. And, um, you know, moving forward from that, I think my whole life has been geared towards understanding why things work or why things don't work. And um, for neurotypical people, it's easy to just be flippant about things and, ah, it's okay, this, that, and the other. For me, I need to know why it's either working or not working. If it's working, I'm gonna do it to death. If it's not working, I'm gonna cut it because I need to find the, the answer to make it work. If, if it's a patient that I'm working with in, in, in a hospital uh, setting, again, I wanna know your personality. I'm gonna wanna know what triggers you. I'm gonna wanna know about you directly. Whereas a lot of the neurotypical doctors that I work with, whether they're neurologists, you know, just doctors, nurses, whatever the case may be, they can afford to be a little bit flippant because they don't actually understand how it feels to be autistic. They don't understand how it feels to view the world from a black and white standpoint. For them, everything is flexible. And for us, it's not.
0: (laughs) I want to briefly talk about culture. So yeah. one one of your identities is being Ghanaian. And yeah. do did you have other people besides your, your son? Were there other people in your family that were that had neuro differences? And were they open about it?
1: I think my cousin, um, he was certainly on the spectrum. And um But we didn't have a name for it at the time, you know, so we just said, "Ah, Richard doesn't talk, you know. Um, But at the end of the day, it didn't stop his his mother, his father from bringing him over to my house and allowing him to play with me and my friends who, you know, appeared to be quite typical at the time. Um, And, you know, he would have been about seven at the time. I would have been about ten. And, uh, at seven years old, he had no words at all. Um, you know, hanging out with my friends, my friends would be like, how come your cousin doesn't talk? I'd be like, I don't know. Like they, they, we didn't have a name for it. He didn't have a diagnosis. There was a lot of praying happening in his house. You know, they were hoping that, you know, God would intervene. And I suppose he has, um, because my cousin got a really good one-to-one teacher, really good, uh, speech and language person. And now my cousin is a rapper like myself. (laughs) Yeah. So I think he started speaking like fluently when he was about 12 or 13. Yeah. But like we kind of lost contact, you know, when he was about eight or nine. So um, I'm not sure if there was a slight falling out between my dad and his dad or whatever. But like I didn't see my cousin for ages. And like the next time I saw him, I was a major celebrity. But like he wanted to get into the game as well. So he called my dad and said, oh, I'm into the music industry as well. I'm in the music business, too. So I want to link up with John Paul and and see if we could do some stuff. So immediately I was like, oh, at the time, it felt like I didn't have any family in the UK at all. So I was like, oh, I have family here. I'm going to go and see him. So I went and picked him up. We went to the studio and we started working together and stuff like that. Again, our personalities clash a little bit. And it's not autism, you know, autism on autism crime or anything like that.
0: (laughs) I'm going to use that next time my my kids fight with each other. I'll call it autism on autism (laughs) crime.
1: (laughs) But, you know, our our personalities clash because I guess we're, we're both hungry for the same type of success. And because I was, you know, on a on another level entirely, we 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 started clashing quite regularly. So again, although we speak today, we're not as close as I wish we could be. But um, to answer your question, were there other people in my family that you know had neuro different differences? Yes, um, but we didn't know the name at the time. And you know, because we have different types of autism, we couldn't have compared ourselves to each other either. So that was a little bit difficult.
0: That is that is fascinating. And that also brings home the point because I know the whole vaccine controversy is still alive in the autism community throughout it. And yes. I think typically when you see one autistic individual in the family, there are others. It's just mm-hmm. depending on your culture, depending on where you're from, Absolutely. there may, or may not be a name for it or people may just act like it's not there. In yeah, my in my absolutely. humble opinion, in my humble opinion.
1: I'd so. agree it. I mean, I, I certainly saw it firsthand in my family and, you know, subsequently to myself having I actually have two children that are on the spectrum, so my oldest son and my last born son. Uh my last born is very talkative, but he stims A lot through the day so you know that was the first thing that drew his autism to my attention but he's a he's a very clever kid he likes what he likes and he doesn't like what he doesn't like so when he's at school and the teacher you know is teaching the class and expecting everybody to be sat down at the table listening he'll be up doing whatever he wants to do and you know that's why it's important for him to have a a diagnosis so he can have the right support In his class.
0: Do you Mm. believe that autism enhances your music making?
1: Um, (laughs) I think autism makes me not leave until I have perfected the project that's in front of me. So, you know, I can make a million errors, but by the time you hear it, it's gonna sound perfect. (laughs) So, you know, with that being said, sometimes I'm writing I scrunch up the paper, throw it away, and I start again. Or if I'm making a beat, you know, and I'm not really feeling it like I I think I should be, I'll just scrap it and start again. But um, does autism help my creativity? Um, Again, because of my other condition, which is synesthesia, I see things visually when I'm thinking about it. So again, I use that to my benefit. And I say, you know, what part of this picture are people going to relate to the most? And that's where I derive my rhymes from. So yes, it helps. (laughs) But in a roundabout fashion, you know? I think um, all of the things that I've been through in life have made me extremely creative. And um, whether it's painting and decorating, whether it's, you know, sewing clothes together, whether it's putting music together, I love doing things that, you know, come from nowhere, basically.
0: No, this may be a hard question, but do you have a favorite project? Do you have a favorite song? And yeah. So what?
1: I think my favorite song that I've written is a song called baby boy. And, um, when I was first writing it, it was just like a romantic song. It was like my group were talking to their partners, their partners responding back kind of thing. And, um, you know, since having four sons of my own, that song really resonates with me more than ever because um, as each of my children were born, I used to sing that to them like repeatedly and stuff like that. I've subsequently recorded it with an autistic group as well. So everybody that's on that record is actually autistic and it sounds amazing. I think some autistic people have a good ear for for singing, for music in itself. So when I was doing that project with um, a lady named Anna Kennedy OBE over here, that was my proudest moment in my career because like I've take I've taken like 7 Autistic people put them in a studio, re-recorded one of my you know classic hits, and made it sound even better. So yeah, that for me is my favorite song.
0: So you are raising two autistic sons of your own. Are there lessons that you wish your parents knew that you're now incorporating into your parenting today?
1: Um I think for me, um, my house was 50 percent strict and 50 percent like really soft. So my dad was the strict person. My mom was really soft and um, I needed both to become who I am today. Kind of thing. Like my dad would make me sit down and do my homework every day. When I finished my homework, he would have some extra work for me to do and stuff like that so i became super intelligent like past my peers by the time i was around 11 12 like there wasn't much the teachers could tell me anymore um as far as learning was concerned and you know i became a bit of a jack the lad or a class clown if you will and i was cracking jokes and then the teacher would say hey john paul what is what's the answer and i'd say (laughs) you know what the answer was I would irritate every teacher with that kind of thing I I wouldn't even be listening but when I can see the equation I can work it out kind of thing so as I say I think I needed both the, the strict with the loving side like the person like I've never seen a more relaxed person than my mother like I've never heard her raise her voice at any of us children or anything like that my dad, on the other hand, he, you know, ruled with an iron rod. So <laughs> we we totally acted different around our parents, you know, and there were some points where we could let our hair down. But like if my dad was there, we were pretty much soldiers, you know. We did whatever he said. Oh, John, go and get me a glass of water. I'd run and, <laughs> and bring back cold water for him to drink and stuff like that. I don't do that with my children. Um For me, I don't shout at my kids. I try not to raise my voice as much as possible. I try to reason with them so they understand. And as I say, even my eldest son, who is classically autistic, you can talk to him and he gets it. He understands everything. So I'm very mindful of what I say around him. Um, I do talk about autism a lot when he's around, but I don't make him feel like autism is is a death sentence. You know, I make him feel like autism makes us superheroes.
0: (laughs) I wanted to ask you briefly, you did mention you had a partner. I wanted to know, is your partner also on the spectrum as well?
1: No, um, my partner is absolutely neurotypical. And, um, you know, I think going through the autism diagnosis because I was I was with her at the time it was difficult for all of us really I mean I went into the diagnosis process you know very optimistic but again I wasn't thinking that the professor would be able to find any autism in me at that stage of my life I mean I was super successful um you know doing things that a lot of neurotypicals weren't out there doing regularly And, um, you know, I went through it thinking that, you know, I have these attributes and I have these, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Traits, even, of of being autistic, but, like, will they be able to see it kind of thing. So, you know, as I was going through the different trials, um, (laughs) one of which was to make a sandwich, right? So I had a a person call me up and, and make an order for instance. So I put the phone down and start creating this sandwich. Then they call back and say, actually, scrap that. I want it to be this, this, and this instead. So, okay, I have a sandwich here, but you want me to change it. Why is is what's going through my head? And um, I almost (laughs) broke down at that point, and I, I just wanted to quit. And then I realized, okay, maybe this is an autistic trait of mine, you know? So, again, back to the question, you know, how did my partner feel about me getting uh, diagnosed? I think, and I'm, I'm I'm being dead serious here, I think she thought that, you know, overnight I had become Forrest Gump or something like that, you know. Like, overnight I just became Rain Man. Like, all of a sudden his eyes are off the ball. He's not this, he's not that, he's not as much as I thought he was. And that was the... Um, I suppose, heartbreaking thing about my diagnosis. It wasn't what the public thought. I don't care what the public think of me. I care about what people in my house think of me. And, you know, if we're not seeing eye to eye about something that is totally me, then it's not going to work. You know? So, you know, we started having issues and different types of conversations at that point. And, um, you know, we still we still you know are very close and stuff like that, but it's not how it was in the beginning or anything like that. So you know it, it did cause some issues. Um when I was going through the diagnosis process, they also asked me a funny question, which was, um, do you think this is gonna stop you from getting work in the future? So I said, no, I don't <laughs> I can't see it kind of thing. Um again I was very self employed I, I I wasn't depending on anyone to generate money for me or anything like that. So um I was like yeah I, I don't see it happening I don't see it shortening my career options kind of thing. But in some ways it did. I mean, you know, my group I guess started looking at me slightly differently. Um a lot of things changed, you know, but it was the people that were the closest to me that were acting brand new if that makes any sense mm. and you know the people that didn't really know me but saw you know my my transition whether it was on social media on TV or whatever everybody else was super supportive so i didn't understand why you know the people that were closest to me just didn't understand or or they thought that i had become a different type of person or something like that so mm. again like i haven't really changed personality-wise, I just understand myself a little bit more. So um, as far as, you know, meeting new people and having new relationships, I don't have those issues. But I think the people that I want to be normal with, it's very difficult because, you know, they have a different perception of me now, which is Mm -hmm. a little bit weird.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really honest. I appreciate you saying that. I think That's the really hard part about being open about this journey. And Mm -hmm. I can only imagine it from the self-advocacy lens, but from the advocacy lens, there is a version of that as well. There are some people who are close to you that you hope will understand what they don't quite understand the way you hope they Mm -hmm. would. You adjust and you end up adjusting. It doesn't mean it's not painful, but you end up adjusting.
1: Oh, it hurt a lot. And I'm talking about maybe three or four years ago, I was I was going through it with everyone. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, people, do you think that all of a sudden I'm different? I've become somebody else, or like why are you you know, behaving in this new manner towards me? Because you know, we've been rocking with each other for many years. So there's no reason for this sudden change. But um again, I think in, in some in some relationships it's a bit of a power struggle and if I'm the face of something and I'm out here admitting hey I'm I'm on this spectrum or whatever is the case people are like no in fact let me do the talking from now on this that and the other and it's just not it's not on it's not right it's not cool it's not what the people are after it's different you know and in a in a relationship with my partner it was like I don't know. I you know, especially for a woman, I have no idea how to put myself in, in those kind of shoes. But like my partner was disabled. She has a spinal condition and stuff like that. So I came into the relationship understanding fully that you know, there's sometimes where you're not going to have use of your legs. I will carry you at those times and I will be your legs kind of thing. If there is a issue going on, I will be your backbone literally and I'll, you know, help you through it. But as soon as I had an issue. It was like, look at you, (laughs) this is your problem. And no one knew how to help, you know, and they became so adverse to everything I was doing. it was like, what is the point anymore? Kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that is my only hang up about getting my own diagnosis. If I didn't have a diagnosis, you would just know me as J rock the, the rapper or J rock the celebrity or J rock the this or that. But, um, there is a full reason why I am J rock, the autistic advocate. And that is because if more people understand what autism is actually like, then they can adjust better. You know, everyone is not rain, man. Everyone is not Forrest dump. Everyone is not, (laughs) not Einstein. But like, you know, we're all different. We all have our talents. We all have different personalities. There are some things that we may do that are similar. Like, you may stim in a similar way to another autistic person. You may even like some of the same things as another autistic person. But in a neurotypical life, you know, you, again, find people that you have things in common with. So, for me, it's just been a normal life. For everybody else, it's like, whoa, he's got this diagnosis and now we have to do this. It's not true. Just keep it moving how you were before and we'll be fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe. If you're interested in the genesis of this podcast, particularly the reason why this podcast came to be, check out season one in its entirety. I've also decided to share parts of our story in written form through a column titled The Caregiver's Chronicles. If you're interested, you could check it out at psychcentral.com. You could follow us on social media at, at Not Your Mama's Autism on Instagram and Not Your Mama's Autism on Facebook. See you soon. Not Your Mama's Autism podcast is hosted and written by my mom, Liladada Ali, and it's also co-written and produced by me, Fela my dad, little sister Alero, and I are all occasional contributors. My dad, Tosanali, also helps produce sometimes. Big thanks to my aunt, Wilane Williams Ali, who did our graphic design. See you guys soon.